The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben. Welcome back. Hey, Ilya. Good to be here. And, and by here, I mean the same place I always am. That's right. It's another week. It's another episode of the Cinematography Podcast. And guess what? We're giving away a book. Are we? We're giving away a book? What book? What book could we possibly be giving away? We're giving away Judith Weston's book. Uh, your yes. friend Ju- your friend and mentor, Judith Weston. Directing Actors, the new edition of it that just came out this year. An amazing book. We had her on a few episodes ago. Anyone who hasn't listened to it, please go check it out. But uh, Judy is giving us an autographed copy of the book. And that's right. And we're going to send it out to someone located in the U.S. here, free of charge. And uh, to help us go ahead and give that book away, we've invited uh, show producer Alana Cody. Uh, Alana, welcome to the show. Hello. Great to have you on here, Alana. We, we talk about you a lot and people don't hear your voice often enough. I think this may, might make your fourth or fifth appearance. So that's great. We, you, we got a whole lot of people entering and you've got some sort of random number generator. Is that right? Why, why don't you take it away? Yeah, why don't it's you? super fancy. You can find it on Google. Oh, yeah. What's, what's it called? Let's, let's give it a plug. It's just a random number generator, literally. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. So uh, you've assigned all the entries a number and you're going to hit submit on that random number generator. And why don't you tell everyone who the winner is? Okay, doing it now. Here it goes. Generate. Number 16. 16. All right. And and who's number 16? Let's see. Number 16 is Daryl Ailes. Daryl underscore Ailes. Congratulations, Daryl Ailes. If you are uh, listening to the sounds of our voices, please uh, reach out. Or if uh, if Alana doesn't get, get a hold of you via Instagram or Twitter or wherever you, you entered. And uh, there's a book coming your way. Yes, indeed. It's Directing Actors by Judith Weston. It's the 25th anniversary edition, freshly updated. And I'm I'm not exaggerating when I say the original edition of this book changed my life. So congratulations. Hope it changes your life, too. It was a very popular giveaway. Lots of people really were interested in this book. So I hope you enjoy it. All right. Congratulations again. And uh, Ben, let's get on with the show. What are we? Oh. Uh, who's on the show today? We have we have kind of a twofer. What? There's a new movie that is coming out this week. It'll be available this week, I believe, on Amazon Prime and Apple, if I'm not mistaken. It is called Master. It is a horror movie, so you know I couldn't wait to talk to the people behind it. And we got to talk to two people behind it: the director Mariama Diallo and the cinematographer Charlotte Hornsby. Both awesome. Mariama is a is a slightly shorter interview because she was doing press, and Charlotte, I interviewed her this morning and probably as we're speaking it is playing in front of its first live audience at south by southwest Ooh, that's right south by is in full swing right now here it is on pi day yes on March pi day 14th. so so they did premiere at sundance i should say but as you both know uh sundance was virtual this year so so they didn't get the satisfaction of showing it to a live audience 
Uh, but I've seen the movie. It's super creepy. It is shades of movies like Rosemary's Baby. And I have asked both the director and the DP, Suspiria. I, I was getting hardcore Suspiria vibes. And I'm talking old school Dario Argento Suspiria here. Wow. All right. I, I know that tickles the uh, the goosebumps on your spine in the best possible mm. way. You've talked about it many times here here on the show. You can't recommend the movie highly enough, and uh, it's it's kind of fun here in the middle of Oscar season to kind of take a break and talk about a really cool horror movie that's coming out that, uh, you know, I, I know I've talked a lot about my dislike of the term elevated horror, but it's definitely part of that movement of horror movies that are kind of like making a point, ma- taking a bold swing, and it really pays off, and I think people are going to dig it. Hmm. Okay, I, in risk of us going down a, a dark and twisty uh, tangent here, what's what's the problem with elevated horror? You, you, uh, you, you my, like your horror just like, you know, in the gutter? You like the, the, no, the, the bottom my, feeding horror? I gotta, elevated is not... My problem is with the term elevated horror oh, okay. is that I feel like there's an implied assertion underneath that term that horror before, uh, say, Get Out, Jordan Peele's amazing Get Out, that horror movies before that were somehow debased or were somehow without subtext. And certainly there have always been and always will be horror movies that are a roller coaster of relatively meaningless violence, not trashing those. But I feel like you can go back to the origins of horror and you will see movies that were making serious points. And, you know, especially even when you get into like the 60s and 70s, because that was sort of what was in the water in all filmmaking and low budget and independent filmmaking. Like you can't watch Night of the Living Dead and say that movie didn't have a a social point or any, frankly, any of George Romero's zombie movies. They're all making a, a big societal point for, you know, that was progressive for its time. Do they hold up today? I don't know. So I guess... The thing is, they weren't talking about elevated horror back then. It's more, I think, when critics and scholars talk about elevated horror, are you telling me that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is somehow debased? And it makes me a little sad. Or Rosemary's Baby, or The Shining, or The Thing, on and on and on. I think that what you're really saying is that a classification of horror film called elevated horror is pretty much meaningless. It's not really a category or a genre into itself because most every good horror film is actually making a point and having subtext and is dealing with themes that go to yeah. your psyche. So so really, it's lazy journalism. We've, we've, we've railed about this That's on the show That's my problem before. with it. It's, that, it's lazy journalism trying to say like, ooh, the sixth sense is elevated horror. There, there are other there are other subgenres like folk horror, for instance, which, mm-hmm. I, which have been around for a long time and people talk about that I don't I, I don't bristle when I hear people talk about folk horror because it's you know if you're talking about the witch or the wicker man or whatever there's a definite subgenre that you can identify there and look at and say okay those have something in common and I mean I guess maybe I would be looking for a different name that was more apt because when you look at something like get out get out works really well as a horror movie if all you want is a horror movie and you turn your brain off and watch that movie you will enjoy it but if you're looking for more Jordan Peele has packed it with subtext and packed it with interesting little nuggets and Easter eggs and things that are like loaded with more meaning. And I feel like if you're looking for subtext, great. You know, like I don't know that John Carpenter's The Thing is making a big social comment except for just about interpersonal dynamics necessarily but so that that wouldn't fall in the the textbook elevated horror genre that is i don't know it's not it's not a social is it cultural could you say it's actually elevated horror should be called cultural horror yeah maybe i don't know you know i mean a lot of times 
it's horror that is pointing out kind of an injustice that's in our world. And I feel like genre, be it sci-fi or horror, is great for that because you can hold up a mirror slightly to the side and the person who's engaged in whatever the injustice is, whatever you want to call it, if be it elitism, be it racism, be it sexism, be it homophobia, whatever it is, that person can maybe see it through a slightly different lens and they don't feel like you're pointing a finger at them and, and being a scold because you're making a horror movie. I mean, for that matter, uh, Freaky, which came out, I think, two years ago or last year, the, the movie, it's a body switch movie with Vince Vaughn where a uh, high school girl switches places with a serial killer. Mm. Like, that's a movie that's like, it's fun. It's hilarious. It's perfectly done pitch perfect it manages its horror it manages its comedy but it has a real undertone of lgbt rights lgbtq rights and representation and in doing that in not a heavy-handed finger-wagging way i feel like it it you know potentially opens up the mind of the viewer now would we call that elevated horror i i haven't heard it brought up in that exact context or, I'd call it cultural horror. I would say that really they're playing on the themes of culture. They're playing on the themes of society. So uh, so why not? It seems certainly more apt than elevated because as soon as you have something elevated, you're immediately saying that something else is not. Exactly. You're calling something else lowered or debased or whatever. And, you know, like if you like slasher movies and you want to go watch Terrifier, good for you. We all we all have our I refuse to call it a guilty pleasure. Some people are like, what's your guilty pleasure horror movie? And I'm like, if you like it, why would you be guilty about it? It's a movie. It's not that if you like Terrifier more than you like uh, Schindler's List, it doesn't make you a bad person. It just makes you someone who likes one thing more than another thing. And honestly, who cares? Um <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's a pretty great quote there comparing the personal taste between uh, Schindler's List and, and basically anything else there and ter- but, Terrifier <laughs> Terrifier yeah. ter- yes. Terrifier which is a slasher movie featuring a really tall creepy clown gotcha yeah okay you know I mean it, it didn't and, star Liam Neeson did it it did not no, okay, no, no. because that, but, uh, that would have been really ironic then if you'd been able to but I I mean I could have gone dark man yeah 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 love that movie and uh but to me like it's a source of frustration and I know I've talked about it on here before because when a horror movie really hits on all cylinders it catches me in a way that no other movie really does and I could argue that the new Matt Reeves the Batman is a horror movie. It functions like a horror movie in so many ways. It's a, just a different level of creepy than that franchise has ever explored. And it's, it is making a social point. Are we going to call the Batman elevated horror? It's really just that, that label. That being said, I do feel like movies like master and get out and I would put, you know, maybe ready or not in a similar category. They kind of fit into this genre where they're giving us a thrill ride. Mariama Diallo in an interview basically said that she sees, master as more of a spooky drama than a straight up horror movie but it has great moments of straight up horror and from the point of view of anyone listening to our show it's extremely stylish it's extremely beautiful you know the camera work that charlotte hornsby does is remarkable and and just like it it shows all the promise of someone whose career we're going to want to follow it fits into that category But I feel like we're just going to keep seeing this over and over again. And, you know, frankly, if calling it elevated horror makes it easier for people to get their movies financed, then, uh, you know, go with God. Keep making them. I just don't like the implication that if you name the movie, you know, Silence of the Lambs, 
well, Silence of the Lambs, best picture winner. But yeah, I've gotten into arguments with people over the years about Silence of the Lambs with people who, who will argue with me and say that it's not a horror movie. And I'm like, there's a guy making a suit out of human skin. That movie has so many horror beats in it that I don't know how you could call it anything else. Like, they're like, it's a thriller. It's like... Yeah, in in as much as any horror movie is a thriller, in as much as any horror movie relies on a chase scene here or there or or whatever, just because it's brilliantly made and pitch perfect in its acting and directing and cinematography and every and editing and everything is firing on all cylinders, I think people don't want to call it a horror movie. Acting like horror is somehow a debased genre is frankly insulting to the people who dedicate their lives to making this stuff. You know, Vonnegut, uh, Kurt Vonnegut kind of talked about how he wrote uh, comedy and science fiction, and they were both at the time considered kind of debased genres, and he combined them and became, you know, mm, okay, know, the gotcha. Mark Twain of his so time. I guess I think that maybe the reason the genre gets a bad rap is that the ones that are bad might be so bad, maybe that because the budgets are low and you don't need necessarily stars, that there is this preconception that a, a low-budget horror movie inherently has to overcome itself or something mm. like that in order to get any sort of credibility. I mean, w- would you agree with that, or do you think that, that, that uh, no? Yeah, I mean... To a degree. I mean, and certainly having been in L.A. as long as I have, I've come across the occasional cynic who's like, yeah, I'm going to make some kind of crappy ass low budget movie so that I can get my foot in the door and then I'll go make the real movies that I want to make. And what I always remember, actually, is when I was first starting out, I was in the art department on this terrible, terrible movie. And the director, I'm not going to name it names, but the director was a commercial director mostly. And he was very nice. And he was nice enough to look at my directing reel. And I was right out of college. And I was asking him about directing commercials. And he said to me, uh, how excited are you about, like, why do you want to do commercials? And I was like, yeah, you know, to get, you know, get my feet wet, to work with cinematographers and actors and, you know, make some money and work. And he's like, okay, so just so you know, the people who direct commercials, they wake up in the morning and they are thinking about making commercials all day. It's their favorite thing. It's what they want to do with their lives. You're kind of being a tourist in a way. I don't, I don't think he said that exactly. But, those but that was the takeaway. <laughs> yeah. It was like, if you're not excited about commercials, then pursuing commercials is kind of insulting to people who work hard to work in that world. And I kind of feel the same way about hard. I, I'm going to, I'm going to cut you off right here. So where does like the Lloyd Kaufman Toxic Avenger part twos fit into that hierarchy. Cause I mean, I think this is what people are talking about when they have elevated horror or piranha 3d or I don't know. You, you know, these, these movies better than me. Three triple D. Um, (laughs) So here's the thing. Yes, there are those movies. Okay. So we could crap on Lloyd Kaufman and trauma pictures. I'm not personally, a major fan of trauma movies. They're almost an in-joke with themselves, but uh, they become a training ground. And if you like, say, James Gunn, James Gunn cut his teeth writing and directing stuff for trauma. And I'm not going to sit here and defend the artistic stature of redneck zombies or surf Nazis must die or... Human um, Centipede 3. You know, I, I will defend that a little bit. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> there's something to be said about Tom Six and what a provocateur he is. 
However, what I appreciate about Troma is that Lloyd Kaufman, first of all, is a showman. He, he's a goofball. I, I don't think I'm saying anything out, out of turn here. He's made a lot of movies. He doesn't take himself that seriously. He's figured out a way to make a living making these movies. Are these movies going to end up in a in a time capsule and are, are people going to teach classes about them in 50 years? I don't personally see that happening, but I know that there are people who love, love, love those movies. Now, are, am I going to tell someone who loves the Toxic Avenger or Sergeant Kabuki Man or, or any of those things? There is some version for everyone, uh, be it movies, music, books, comic books of turn off your brain and enjoy this thing. And that's what these people are making and, and selling. And, you know, some people enjoy watching a movie like Sharknado because it is audaciously silly. Like it's like just set, it's running full <laughs> force into silly. And does Sharknado have the desire to change someone's mind about anything in the way that Jordan Peele's movies do? No, in no way do they. And Jordan Peele's comedy, frankly, was the same. You know, like Jordan Peele has used entertainment as a way to get ideas into people's heads, be it horror, be it comedy, be it whatever. You know, even his Twilight Zone, I, I feel like was it wasn't horror. It was Twilight Zone. But I guess I, I just feel like that's the journalist or whatever. That's their need to stand above the filmmaker and criticize them and be like, well, this, you know, like whatever, this shouldn't be at Cannes. OK, so Sharknado shouldn't be playing at Cannes. And, and maybe a movie like Master belongs in a place like Sundance or a place like South by Southwest. I think that's awesome. But I, I also feel like there's plenty of room for both. And again, I'll shut up after this, but I just personally wish that I think that we should give all genres. I could say how many terrible romantic comedies are there? Does that mean that romantic comedy is a debased genre? I, I, we could point out crappy ass dramas. <laughs> gotcha. I don't usually hear people talk about the elevated romantic comedy, but, but clearly it must be there. Well, but there but there are romantic comedies like, you know, your when Harry's met Sally's and, you know, your weddings and funerals and. Yes, your sleeplessnesses in Seattle's is those end up sticking around. You know, Bridget Jones' Diary. There, I think that there are movies out of any genre that that kind of rise to that level. And I also feel like if you're making a straight drama, like all the stuff that's nominated for Best Picture, frankly, or anything that's Oscar nominated, like that's you're you're basically saying this is elevated cinema. This is we're making cinema at a higher level than just entertainment. And then, and the trick is, how do you make that not feel like homework to watch? Mm. And some movies do it better than others. But the thing about genre, all genre to me, comedy, horror, sci-fi, like the idea is is to not make it feel like homework. Mm. the The genre part of it is the thing that's that's making it fun and entertainment. You know, I gotcha. Then that will end my rant. We should. We should. <laughs> then with that, let's get to the interview. So uh, let's go ahead and start with Mariama Diallo. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. I'm here with Mariama Diallo with her amazing new horror feature, uh, Master. Really, really amazing film. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Excited to be here. First up, it's really exciting to see horror going in so many interesting directions. And I, I read an interview with you where you were talking about your inspirations and some of them were Rosemary's Baby, Let the Right One In. And I was wondering if Suspiria, Dario Argento's Suspiria was one of them because I saw so many parallels to Suspiria in your film. 
Yeah, you know, Suspiria is um, the original one, particularly a film that I love. It's certainly an inspiration. As far as the uh, direct influences and some of the references that Charlotte and I watched, we actually didn't rewatch Suspiria together, mm. but I think that it nevertheless bled into the film in different ways. I know I was like, it's at a school. It's about a young woman, maggots. The cinematography included lots of like very saturated, colorful lighting that kind of reminded me of that. You said also in an interview that the movie is in part, and I thought this was just a fascinating thing, and I've been thinking about it ever since, about how physical space informs behavior. Tell me about that. That's the first time I've ever heard anyone say something like that, and I, and I, and I think it's a, a brilliant thing to think about. Well, you know, it's it's definitely something that was on my mind when I wrote the film and when we were shooting it is the role that a location or an institution or a space can play. And that in a certain sense, something that is ostensibly inert can still have its own kind of energetic power. And that when inside of that kind of space, the people who exist within it behave and respond in certain ways. And um, mm. and I think in the case of Ancaster, which is, you know, the fictional college that's at the center of Master, we see it exerting itself on the characters and, and that they feel compelled to behave or respond in, in certain particular ways. So let's go into your inspirations for writing. And, you know, again, I've read some interviews with you about attending Yale, I believe it was. But tell me about the basic inspirations for the film. And also, like, because it is something that you're drawing from your own experience with, what made you decide to go with a horror movie as the, or, or as, as you said, I, I think you called it a spooky drama. What made you decide to go down that road with a personal story? So, yes, exactly. Like you said, I went to Yale as an undergrad. And while I was there, there were masters like you see in Ancaster. That is a title that no longer exists um, at the school. But while I was there, it was still very much a reality. And before you even set foot on campus as an incoming freshman, you're assigned a master. And it's explained as being part of this proud history of the school. And uh, it's also explained away as, as having uh, been inherited from the British system and therefore not at all to do with any of the more untoward uh, definitions of the word. And it goes down pretty easy. I mean, definitely it did for me. I took their explanation uh, readily. And before I knew it, there was uh, somebody in my life who was at least nominally my master. We all, uh, you know, called and responded to this person in this way. And that was just very normal. Uh, and then a few years after I graduated, I ran into my master and we had a very lovely interaction. But there was this jarring moment at the start where I greeted him and we were in New York City. So we were at this point, you know, far from Yale. And I greeted him by name, which includes master. And it was, it was immediately bizarre and almost perverse uh, to, <laughs> you know, refer to someone this way. And I think on the, you know, in the case of the person on the receiving end, the master, I think it was also very jarring to be referred that way outside of the college. And so as I, you know, as I walked away and I left and I was kind of thinking about that, I was just like, 
holy shit, you know, this is, <laughs> this is crazy. And this is, this is something that I haven't really examined. Um, and it's just been a part of my life very much in the background. And I found something very powerful and, you know, meaningful and interesting just held within that title and that word. And so I told myself from then, from that day that I really wanted to make a film called Master and take a look at not only that experience of mine, but also all of the, you know, all of the realities of, of what that word can mean. And in the case of the character Hill Bishop, what it means to a Black woman who has been thrust into that kind of scenario. And so in the process of starting to think about the world and the story and the film, I had to go back through my own history and through my own memories and through a chapter that had been at that point, at least in my mind, long since closed and accessing that space and, and returning to, you know, some of the more painful elements of that experience that I had necessarily suppressed. That entire investigative process, it felt like a horror. It felt like <laughs> I was peeling back the layers of a horror story and it just seemed horror as a genre seemed so well suited to, to the space that I was going back into. Is horror as a genre uh, something you've aspired to work in as a filmmaker uh, as, as you've been kind of developing your career? Yeah, it is. And, and I love horror. I have been a lifelong horror fan. And in some of my earliest days, you know, starting out screenwriting, I, I wrote in any number of genres. I kind of was writing what I thought I should write. And I would, and it wasn't horror. Uh, because it didn't strike me as a medium that would be taken seriously. And I wanted, you know, like any recent college grad, I definitely mm -hmm. wanted to be taken seriously. So I worked on a couple of stories that ultimately didn't inspire me. And so I had to take a moment and pause and really say, well, what is it, what is it that you like to see? What is enjoyable actually for me? And the answer immediately was horror. And so I started engaging with those kinds of stories and, and that kind of less logical space. And, and then things really started flowing for me in a real way. As a, as a writer and as a director. Yes, exactly. Um, and horror, for me, part of what I take away from it is that, uh, that it's an expression of an anxiety. Mm. And um, <laughs> And that, <laughs> you know, and, and that that's, you know, I, I think that when we're really firing on all cylinders and it's truly, truly satisfying, I think that it's engaging with uh, with an idea that is causing, you know, a personal anxiety that can also be extrapolated out, you know, societally. I mean, I think about Rosemary's Baby mm. and I, I understand that also as a lack of autonomy, a woman's lack of control over her own body, uh, not being taken seriously, not being trusted. Or you look at Carrie and for me, that's also, you know, <laughs> fear of like, you know, the pubescent female form and, you know, or even something as recent as It Follows. I think that there were anxieties about sexuality and, you know, sexually transmitted infections. And, and so it's, it's a space that is very emotionally raw and it really kind of frees you to, to talk about the core of something that's disturbing 
you know, horror isn't just disturbing because there's a jump scare or something like that. It's also disturbing because it's expressing something truly unsettling and unnerving at its core. And in the case of Master and my own experience, the thing that was so unnerving about a space being a Black woman in a space like Yale and moving through an institution that's so old that can trace its, you know, its roots back nearly to, you know, the beginning of the nation mm. is entering a space that was not designed for you and in some ways is kind of protective against you. And how do you remain yourself in that kind of environment, especially given the commitment that a place like that has to history and to its history and to remaining kind of tied to the past. And it's all very anxiety provoking. <laughs> I've never even been there and the idea of going to Yale creeps me out, so. Yeah, well, you're right. <laughs> there's lots of good, but you know, there's a, lot, there's a lot of residue that's also left behind. And there are a lot of metaphorical ghosts, like perhaps literal ghosts. There's a lot that's just left hanging there um, and, and you feel it. So let's talk a little bit about working with Charlotte Hornsby, your, your cinematographer. Tell me about how the two of you met, like what your working process is like, you know, what, what it's like to work with her. Yeah, so Charlotte and I worked on my short film, Hairwolf. We met for that project and we just really immediately hit it off. And I think that we were interested in a lot of the same things and we loved to share films and ideas. And so having known each other from the short, when it was time to go and make Master, I was really excited to work with her again and build on the conversations that we had had and the ideas and the influences and the references that had been percolating between us. And it was a really fun, collaborative process. And, and we took our time and we had a lot of time because of our relationship. We weren't uh, necessarily bound to the parameters of prep. I mean, we were prepping from far before prep actually began. And we would mm -hmm. we'd watch films, we'd send each other lengths, we'd talk about, you know, things that we loved and try to scare each other and just, uh, <laughs> you know, discuss the, the world of the film and the look of the film and, and try to figure out how we were going to represent that. Well, and I thought that the film did a really interesting balance of of creating sort of a naturalistic feeling of being on a campus and then going into like extremely stylish lighting and camera work. And I was wondering how uh, what your approach was to balancing those so that it didn't feel it never once feels like it feels like a tone shift within the same story, but it doesn't feel like it doesn't it never pulled me out. It always felt really organic to it. But can you talk about sort of that dichotomy of looks or there, there may be more that I'm just not even aware of, too? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that we started from the baseline of imagining how to picture the school. And I would consider Ancaster to be another character in the film and really mm. the primary antagonist. And that's a conversation that Charlotte and I had at the very beginning. So a lot of what we were wondering was, how do we represent the feeling of this school? And the way that it evolved for us is this idea of, of the school as this stalking presence um, and being very orderly and controlled where you see in these static shots, but then also, you know, the careful composition, a slow push and a slow zoom and this uh, very genteel kind of way of um, portraying uh, the school through the camera. 
And so a lot of the way that we lit it was not in that very lurid color space that um, that comes up later, but in a little bit more of a considered and patient kind of way. Mm. And then we wanted to also, you know, have these moments of jarring interruption where, you know, where you see like, for instance, in uh, the shower scene uh, with Jasmine or later when she's in the hallway, where there are these very, very vivid crimson lights quite the opposite of a lot of the, the feel of the film. And, and, it, and it seemed to us to be this, these moments, these almost violent ruptures in the very polite presentation of the school and of the film. It's these emotional outbursts almost where we're really kind of keyed in to a character's mind space. And that's when they're particularly vulnerable, whether psychologically or literally physically, it's like, uh, you know, when there's an earthquake and, and there's a fissure in the ground and what's really at the heart of the school bleeds into the film or bleeds into the, the characters' lives. That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, I, we're, we're about out of time. I'd love to keep talking to you about it. Uh, beautiful film. Congratulations. And uh, it's great to meet you. Thank you so much, Ben. I wish we could have talked for longer, but I'm sure Charlotte will be talking to you soon. All right, so uh, that was Mariama Diallo. Thank you again for coming on the show, Mariama. Cannot wait to see what you have coming out next. And by the way, if anyone's interested, her short film, which is called Hair Wolf, is available on her Vimeo. We can attach a link in the show notes to check it out. But that was her first collaboration with our next guest, cinematographer Charlotte Hornsby. So here is Charlotte. So I'm here today with Charlotte Hornsby. You're in, you're in New York, correct? I'm actually in Austin uh, for Austin. South by Southwest. <laughs> oh, so lucky. Oh, oh, South by is, is like, is that happening right now? I mean, yeah, the, the film uh, premieres today at uh, South by. <laughs> so uh, the, the film we're here to talk about is Master. So so you haven't premiered. So Sorry, I'm talking. It, it's a Master. It played at Sundance, but um, that was virtual. Yeah. And so yeah. this is like it's kind of in-person premiere. Oh, that's sweet. So you haven't seen Master with an audience yet or have you? Well, so I, we saw Master with, with an audience for the first time on Thursday, which was a wild experience. So I'm really excited to see it again with this audience. Yeah, so we spoke to Mariama last week. And, you know, I, I read some interviews with you and her about being influenced by Let the Right One In and Rosemary's Baby. But I couldn't get away from and, and I asked her about this and I, and I want to hear your take on it. Dario Argento's Suspiria. There are so many parallels to Suspiria. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people have had that same response and the like incredibly vibrant kind of yeah. uh, pulsing red. <laughs> yeah. I think it's one of you think of one of my favorite shots in Suspiria is just all the women at like the ballet school in silhouette. You know, yes. And they kind of play with all the shadows and like it's something that really I really want to play with shadow a lot more um, in this film. And I have like a folder of image references that's teeming over but um that's certainly one of them oh that's cool yeah i mean like when i saw the movie it was like there's a scene with maggots it's about a girl starting a new school and kind of feeling like you know trying to get her footing in a new school and then there was your extreme saturated lighting the, the beautiful saturated colors in the lighting anyway it was just super exciting so you've worked with mariana a couple of times right like uh i, I watched your short hair wolf yeah, that's how we met was on Harold's, um, and that was our only other collaboration um, besides Master, but it was an incredible experience, and mm -hmm. we just 
hit it off right away and had a comfort level around each other. And I think we like to work in a very similar way, um, which is just so much time in person, shot listing extensively together, going back to watch references, acting out the scenes in the space together. And then she brought me into the rehearsal for Hairwolf, which is great and an opportunity I think most DPs aren't really afforded. Um, most directors aren't afforded rehearsals, so. <laughs> yeah, it was precisely exactly for that reason. I was trying to pick this out, but I, I don't know that I uh, was able to do a thorough enough dissection. But would you say that there's like a difference in the kind of lenses you want to live on in comedy versus horror? And I know that, you, I mean, like I've been through your website. I know you've done music videos and commercials and fashion-y stuff and a, a bunch of different things. But like, you know, specifically talking about your collaborations with Mariama. That's a great question. My gut response is there's definitely not any hard and fast rules about lensing for comedy versus horror. Again, for Harold, we lived on the 24 to 290. And so zooming is actually quite funny. But you use zooms awesomely. I love the zooms that you have in uh, in Master. No, like it makes it feel like a like Peter Medax, the changeling or something like these kind of s- slow zooms into landscapes that like, yeah, it, it gives it this. I love that film, too. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I mean, I honestly I find the 24 to 290 just this exhilarating range and um, it, having it just it's like such a critical tool. I think so much of Master was just on dollies, steady cams, and zooms because you just want that feeling of impending dread. You want that feeling yeah. that the audience is kind of leaning forward in their seat um, or or leaning back. There's just this incredible ability to kind of sculpt a shot in time in a way that some people consider campy, but I, I love a long, slow zoom. I find it incredibly satisfying. And when you're operating as well as DPing, you can key into the pace of the scene. And and the crew was responding to that too. Like I remember there was a shot where... Um, I mean, I had originally conceived of it as just a static shot. And then um, we just, I was like, I don't know. And um, my gaffer and you see, like, yeah, let's just put the zoom on. <laughs> I was like, yes. <laughs> and so then I was like, let's, let me just get one, uh, one, one more tape with the zoom. And, uh, and that's the one that we used. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, I mean, and I think that that's an interesting thing to talk about, too. I don't know that I've ever really, like, dissected the many uses of the zoom lens with anyone before, you know, because I feel like zoom feels like a thing of its own, of a period, you know, like zooming in a movie was kind of like a new thing to do in the 1960s. 30s. Yeah. Yeah. You see a lot in the 60s and 70s. And then, you know, then it falls out of favor. And then, you know, you start seeing it coming back in. But it's like if you had a shot that you were lining up and you were saying, like, all things being equal, this could be on a dolly, this could be a zoom i can I, this could be handheld this, i could move this anyway what makes you go for the zoom when you do well there's that idea right that the zoom is bringing the subject towards us and the dolly is bringing us towards the subject mm-hmm. and then with the steady you're also bringing the audience towards the subject so i think a lot of our dollies and steadies were about wanting to feel a character's relationship to the space and a lot of the zooms they're almost more in internal or like interior or kind of like a, I'm thinking of the opening shot, you know, as the lum zoom, which is paying homage to the opening of Rosemary's Baby. Yeah. Um, but also just was, you know, that was a shot that we were considering as a static. And then Rosemary's Baby is just, the opening is incredibly effective because it's just, it's slowly unfolding. You're not really sure. It's, you're, you're getting your bearings, you know, at the opening of the movie, you're always kind of like, so you're kind of like, you're here. We, we've like just plopped you down in this world of it and Pastor College. And then you're just starting to slowly key in on this one lone figure in red. 
you know, and there's something about that is like, it's a little bit voyeuristic, you know, like we talked about wanting that shot to feel like it's the spirit of the school and almost like this malicious presence kind of lurking up at like gargoyle level, you know? Mm. So it's kind of like, it's an impossible human vantage point. So it feels, I think, similar to Rosemary's Baby. It's like no human can kind of like ascend those heights quite. And uh, I I almost think like, you know, wind of desire, but totally different. Like that, you know, the wind of desire, it's an angel's point of perspective, right? (laughs) And this is kind of a demon's perspective, but it's just that like supernatural. There there is, I think, there's a a supernatural POV in horror that um, it's not always as literal as that, but you can kind of, evokes that feeling that like there's a there's a force that's watching this you know so yeah. i think the zoom is kind of that like spiritual force watching and the dolly is often the characters you're know, moving to the space and of course that's not a hard and fast rule but um but we definitely know that's interesting honestly i've been doing this for eight years and i've never heard that disc- that explanation and i'm going to use that now so that that was no that's brilliant yeah i mean i, I love the use of pov and also like i i feel like this was very intentional on your part but like there's a sense in the movie where it's like it's shot in there's kind of a duality to the way it's shot there's very naturalistic stuff a lot of it's the daytime stuff and the nighttime stuff gets a little bit more impressionistic expressionistic suspiria like but also initially it's her nightmares that are like that and then it it threw me in in a good way. It, it kind of got me off my footing as as a viewer trying to figure out, trying to be smarter than the movie, which everyone always does. Because like when I, I kind of got clued into like, okay, when you're using that saturated lighting, it's a nightmare. And then it started bleeding into her real life. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the decision to kind of make nightmares join more of a, a naturalistic reality that you'd already kind of set up? Well, I think it was important to Mariama that that the nightmares not live in their own palette and their own separate universe, because the whole experience of the film is that this place isn't a, a waking nightmare. Yeah. Um, it was more like an emotional cue to have that red hazard exit light. And when we implemented it for the party scene, which is an example of one of those nightmares in real life. Yeah. Um, that decision was one that my gaffer and I made as we were just talking about the emotional experience of Jasmine, the character. And he was talking about Morven Collar, uh, the Lynn Ramsey film. And um, there's this amazing concert scene where Samantha Morton is just being keyed alternately by like a red strobe and like a white light. And it's very, feels like it's like swimming under your eyelids. <laughs> and so I think that when the, when that song came on when the Mobamba song comes on at the dance party, you know, which starts as as joyous and kind of like pretty innocent, you know, and then just suddenly becomes full of menace. It was a great opportunity to use a light cue that like made enough sense in the space because we see like, you know, it's it's a a, a party lit space. We have those cheap little like Spencer's kind of gift lights going. Um, <laughs> but then suddenly it was able to also abstract all the faces, these kind of leering faces. Yeah. Uh, these, you know, raging kind of this uh man you have and and women you know this just uh inarticulate uh aggressive force you know that's bubbling under the surface it's one of those times where it's like mask off it just kind of rears its head yeah um and so being able to have that pulse of an abstracting light where um you know you're kind of denying the viewer the the full face it's more of it's this sensory like animal level (laughs) uh, experience and i was talking about this recently but you know the the guy the party goers in that scene it was daytime and they were all really nervous about getting to the 
kind of frenzied level that Mariana wanted to get them to. Or yeah, they were cautious about it. Like no one was actually drunk. Um, and it's a small group of people. And um, and so getting them to kind of perform that straight into the lens um, with that light and being able, you asked about lending, like going a little tighter because we we could, we didn't have the um, enough people just to, there weren't enough people who were feeling the whole um, maniacal <laughs> frenzy of that moment. So that's the time where it's like, okay, just throw in a tighter lens and like just let's key into the faces who are like channeling that feeling and and that'll make the scene, you know? That's awesome. That reminded me also, uh, not in the way you lit it, but just kind of in the feeling that that scene gave me. And I don't know, this is too weird of a cut, but Brian Usna made a movie in the 1980s called Society extremely like uh this uh, special effects makeup guy known as screaming mad george did this completely surreal thing where like basically they're absorbing the poor people and so they oh yes 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 shit i've seen uh, stills of this it looks incredible yeah yeah i'm yeah well check it out i i I mean like you know your your film is extraordinarily different in the way that it it accomplishes you know sort of what it's accomplishing but there's like a parallel thing of like a poor person going into this rich society and it not really making sense let's talk a little bit also just about your career leading up to this and i want to drill down a little bit about the turn from being in the art department to being a dp you know we've talked to numerous people i always think about charles pappert who shot key and peel and he had been kind of a top level steadicam operator and when he decided to be a dp he sold his steadicam so that he couldn't fall back on it and when people hired him they weren't hiring him because he could also do steadicam and and so i'm curious though like when you decided to stop doing art department was it a cold turkey kind of a thing like okay i'm focusing on being a dp or like you're making money as a production designer and you're and you're shooting stuff on the side until you had enough of a portfolio but like when did you make the break yeah that's a great question so what's kind of wild about it is actually that i was living so after i made this featurette I moved to New Orleans with my 5D and pretty soon after I uh, moved down there, I was trying to find work as DP. And this was a really easy way to kind of just reinvent myself and say, I am not arriving in a new oh, yeah. town. <laughs> I'm just yeah, yeah. in a whole new city with a camera. Yeah. And I was like, hey, I'm a camera for hire. And I linked up pretty quickly with a woman from my hometown um, who I knew was producing uh, and I just moved down to New Orleans and um, she and I like got a drink and, you know, um, I said, I, I, I kind of explained, I have my camera. If you need, you know, if you know of any jobs or uh, ever need anything or want to collaborate. And then so she had a friend who was working with Solange on her album, A Seat at the Table. And so she like texted me a few days later, maybe a week later and said, oh, Solange actually needs uh, someone to just be in the studio documenting her recording process. Absolutely exhilarating. And so I just started off as like, a, you know, fly on the wall, observing. And then and uh, there was a lovely just um, feeling of kind of, it was a very, it was a welcoming and, and very respectful kind of a space. And, and, and uh, so I was like, all right, I'm going to kind of tiptoe into, into getting a little bit, having a little more fun with these compositions and starting to, uh, you know, move my camera around the space and, and just film this like the, like a, a documentary because um, this is kind of exciting and I'm not really, you know, given any direction and that turned into um this documentary for her album um and so when i would go back up to new york to visit my boyfriend at the time and now husband i would do art (laughs) art department jobs and i would come back to new orleans i would do camera um Mm. and so that's kind of how i made the transition that's cool and then i mean oh i mean that but that's got to be an enormous feather in your cap too making that 
Yeah, it was, uh, I was really, really lucky when you talk about right time, right place. But like the perfect person for the job too, you know? Oh, it, it was, um, it felt like everything somehow about moving to New Orleans, it's like the city just like opened its arms and, and welcomed me. And um, there was a whole series of just like poetic, um, like you're in the right place kind of affirmations. And that was probably the biggest one. Well, I feel like I've taken a great deal of your time and I appreciate you taking the time. And I think that's actually a great place to leave it. So before we go, uh, where can people find you online? If you're active on social media, where can people find your stuff online? Uh, my site is just my name, charlottehornsby.com. Uh, mm -hmm. And my Instagram handle is at charlottehornsby underscore. Cool. Yeah. So everybody uh, check that out. And Master, I think it's getting released like this week, right? Yeah. So we had our uh, Sundance premiere in January. We are having our South by premiere today. And then it comes out on uh, Amazon Prime this Friday. That's amazing. Yes. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah, no, I, I want you to have the most exciting and amazing uh, screening today at South by. I wish I wish I could be there. I, it's, it's so exciting to be able to see movies in a theater again and not be afraid of dying. Yes, absolutely. And um, I also recommend anybody in uh, New York and LA and also Chicago. It's going to be in theaters also starting this Friday, March 18th. So yeah, have that theatrical experience. It's cool. really worth it with this one. Excellent, excellent. Thank you so much for, for coming on the show. It's, it's exciting to meet you and I can't wait to see what you do next. Thanks so much for having me. All right, so that was Charlotte Hornsby. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show, Charlotte. Yeah, that was great. Hey, uh, Ben, it's bill paying time. Let's uh, pay right. some bills. All right, let's pay bills. Who Who's paying the bills? Uh, who's today? buying the drinks tonight? Tonight, the drinks are on Aperture. Aperture, right. uh, makers of fine lighting products, very popular amongst uh, YouTubers and uh, owner operators and professionals of all flavors. Uh, you see them in behind the scenes. God, I'm seeing them all the time. They have a couple of new light boxes. And by light boxes, I mean soft box. They're in Bowen's mount. It works with all of their, their lights that take a Bowen's mount. And of course, they're available over at Hot Rod Cameras. They've got one, though. Uh, I want to point out called the 6090 and the 6090 clocks in at a whopping $66. It is uh, what? <laughs> yes, I know. So there's, there's people out there who have probably in the past gone, Oh, you know, I'd like to buy a softbox for whatever this is and have thought, I can't afford that, or that's going to be hundreds and hundreds of dollars. And Seriously, I, I thought you were going to say it's, it's like $600. No, I, I have to call them out on this. For making a product that is so darn inexpensive, it's a pretty well put together thing. And even if you were a complete dummy and destroyed it, I mean... The, and I am. The rental on something like the, something like this that you might get from somewhere else, you could probably afford to destroy it and buy it again. If you had to, it wouldn't be the, the end of the world. It comes with two densities of front diffusion. There's essentially a piece of fabric in the front that'll either give you, uh, you know, one level of diffusion or a, a stronger level of diffusion. It also has a fabric grid, includes a carrying case, and the whole thing what? weighs... Yeah, I know. <laughs> the whole thing weighs... The carrying like, case is worth 60 bucks. Uh, well, I think it's kind of like more like a, you know, a, a little zippered bag type of thing. But regardless, Still. it's only it's less than three pounds and it makes a really soft light. And if you want to make people look flattering, a big soft source is a great way to do it. So for anyone out there who's thinking about maybe adding like some sort of soft box to their light, a Aperture 6090 will set you back 66 bucks and uh, you'll be pretty glad that you had it because um, it, it really changes the quality of your light and you can get it over at Hot Red Cameras, hotredcameras.com. There it do is. Do it. Go to hotrodcameras.com right now and demand your shirt.
<laughs> That's right. For, for those of you who are new listeners and don't remember, if you do come to Hot Rod Cameras and mention the podcast, uh, there's a good chance you'll get a Hot Rod Cameras shirt for free. So we have a quite bunch of fashionable right now. Yes, quite fashionable. V-neck. V-neck. Very, very stylish these days. Available nice. in small, medium, large, extra large, double X large, women's sizes, most of those as well. So, yeah. Ask did you get new ones? I thought you were running low. Did you? Did you uh, we order? did. We we turns out we we had some more, so we unboxed oh. some more, and now we got them. Sweet. And now short ends. All right, so Ben, it is time for short ends. What is your obsession this week? What is your short end? Well, it's it's a YouTube channel that I've been sort of paying a little bit of attention to lately, and it's a channel called Jake in Motion. And Jake, I guess is his name, he teaches online classes in After Effects, but he did a series that you can find very easily on YouTube for free called Effects of After Effects. What is Effects of After Effects? Well, After Effects <laughs> is full of effects. I don't know if that computes. <laughs> you, you, you narrowed it down there. After Effects has so freaking many effects. And uh, how many, you may I ask? It's like in the neighborhood of 240 that are just native plug. This isn't like external plugins like uh, Element 3D or something like that or Saber. This is like stuff that if you just get After Effects, this is all in there. And as uh, someone who's been using After Effects kind of a lot for work for now probably 10, 12 years, it's amazing to watch him because he's just a very clear, spoken, straightforward teacher. He goes through literally every effect in all of After Effects, shows you all the controls, shows you how you might use it. And they're all kind of short. They're all like maybe 10 minutes. There are some that are like an hour long. Most of them are not. Uh, and the hour long ones are an hour long because it's some effect that does 400 freaking things. And uh, I just find it's really helpful, even even for the effects that I know how to use already. It's interesting to see him explain how to use them because I mostly have just been figuring it out like a lot of people do by uh, following a video co-pilot tutorial and then uh, poking it with a stick until it did what I wanted. And this guy's very precise and shows you what all the uh, controllers do and, and how to use it. So if you ever had any interest in using After Effects, and if you're a filmmaker of any kind, I think the power of After Effects is undeniable. Uh, what you can do with it, not just for graphic design, but for how you mess with your shots, how you add stuff into your shots. It's an amazing series, and uh, I've been watching it probably for a few weeks now, and I doubt I'm even one-tenth of the way through all of them. Okay. Well, uh, it's totally outside of my my wheelhouse, but uh, I've actually really wanted to learn After Effects, and so maybe I, I will uh, spend a little time diving into this. I, I'm hoping to rearrange my life a little bit now that I'm, my online class I was taking is over, and uh, I have room for, for perhaps adding something like that, so maybe uh, After Effects it is, or I was going to think about teaching myself like, you know, machine learning, one of those things. I hadn't, hadn't, oh, wow, wow. Yeah, well, you know, deep faking and all that sort of stuff. I think that might be the future. It might be. It might be. <laughs> Maybe did you see, by the way, did you see the Corridor Digital y video yes. that they did? Yes. You, it was your short end a while ago, and I watched it, and it was freaking great. It was so good. I, I can't believe, like, yeah, the, the real-time stuff that they did on that was just mind-boggling. It blew me away. So, uh, Ilya, what is your obsession of the week? It's a TV series. It's on Apple TV, and it's produced and, I think, created by Ben Stiller. It's called Severance. 
Severance. And, you know, I, I didn't really necessarily think that I myself am a Ben Stiller super fan. But as I was starting to go through this and I looked at all the stuff that he has done that I loved, I realized I'm a Ben Stiller super fan. Even the stuff that are misses, I, I still find lots of redeeming qualities and some things are just so freaking brilliant. I can't even tell you. I think I talked about Tropic Thunder for an entire year in 2008. <laughs> I thought it was it was so great. Well, I mean, did you see his last series, Escape at Denimura? I know that you did. And I know you were a huge fan of that but you know he huge also fan. he also produced my favorite movie of Sundance and I want to say 2020 which was Dinner in America that thing was freaking brilliant and and you know he's a incredible producer incredible director and of course actor and Severance is is no exception Severance is so great it stars Adam Scott as a worker at a large corporation you can't tell exactly what it is but he and all the other people who work with him it seems uh who work on this particular floor of the company have voluntarily agreed to undergo a surgical operation to keep their work life and their personal life completely separate. So if you are living your personal life, you have no memory of your work life. And if you're living your work life, you have no memory of your personal life. So it it creates this really interesting setting to explore all kinds of different aspects of this particular level of, of science fiction, which feels startlingly real like this sort of thing is might just be around the corner that something like this could exist and boy the unintended and or maybe intended consequences of it are are, are frightening and and wonderful to behold not to mention incredible performances from patricia arquette and Britt lower and john turturro and uh oh god christopher walken it's like i mean it's an incredible supporting cast really a lot of I hesitate to say fun because it doesn't ever look like most of the characters are having much fun, but it's so entertaining and darkly like this, the same type of like dark humor that speaks to Ben Stiller must just speak to me because I I really, really enjoy uh, his particular flavor of this. And it's been so, oh, and I have to, I should also uh, shout out to the cinematographer, Jessica Lee Gagne. Fantastic. It's really, really great. And uh, I, I hope we can have her or other people from the show on our show because, boy, I'd love to talk to them about uh, Severance, which has been so much fun and delight. I look forward to it on Fridays, even though I, I know that all the people who are in that show, at least in their work lives, are they're all experiencing some level of existential dread that they have chosen to block from their personal lives, which makes them seem like they would be much happier. But we don't get to see all that. So I, I don't know, Ben, you, you watch the show. I know we talked about this a little after the last episode. What, what do you think of it? No, no, I, I have never seen Severance. Oh, you've never seen it? Holy crap. No, no, well, what are, you're, you're, you're thinking of somebody else. Oh, my God. Okay. I, I totally thought that you and I talked about it, but I guess I guess we didn't. So, all right. Well, now, now you've got homework. <laughs> you've got to figure out how definitely. to... Definitely. No, it's, it's definitely something that's been kind of on my list, but I was uh, getting through... Uh, I mean, it, we've been, like, lousy with great television lately, and I, I think I... Uh, it, it's hard to compare them, but I was getting through uh, Pam and Tommy. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, you know, that, that's also good. So it's not, it's not, I'm glad you were spending your time watching something great, not mm, yeah. the latest Sharknado. Sharknado 9. Yeah. <laughs> who knows? Anyway, so, so Ben, don't, I think. Don't crap on the newest Sharknado. <laughs> if you have learned one thing from me today, anyway. I should crap on the earlier Sharknados, is what you're saying. Crap on none of the Sharknados <laughs> or any of the shark based movies. What about the one with movies? Debbie Gibson and Tiffany? They have a fight scene. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> All right, I think that's just going to do it for today. Ben, where can people find you if they if they want to find you outside of this uh this this fantastic episode? 
if you're an old person on Facebook like me, go to the group Needs a Werewolf, and uh, I'm I'm the administrator of Needs a Werewolf, and I'd love to hear your werewolf-based improvements to any any movie, book, TV, song, any werewolf-based discussion you feel like getting into. I I, I support all, uh, as we like to say, like and subscribe. Ooh, the, the uh, puns, the puns. Other than that, you can find me at uh, benrockonline.com. I am making another bid for benrock.com to the Brunswick Boat Company or whatever it is. Uh, I, I have reached. I have emailed them and and reached out to them via uh, direct message on Facebook because again, for those of you who've never listened to it, there's an ongoing drama that Benrock used to be a company that made boat motors, and then they were bought by a company called Marine One in like 2002, and then that company was bought by Brunswick and they phased out the website. So if you go to Benrock.com, there's nothing there. Hmm. And it and hasn't been for years. And I keep every now and then going out to them and saying like, hey, could we talk about, you know, me getting this domain from you? I promise you I will sell no boats ever. Maybe, I will not be your competition. Maybe you should start just randomly sending gift baskets to them or something. Because, <laughs> you know, you can try shaming them on Twitter. You know, that that's one that's one method. But I don't think you're going to get too many flies with, with vinegar, as they say. But if you can just like randomly just start sending gift baskets to like the president yeah. of the Brunswick you know, boat motor corporation. Maybe, maybe someone will be like, who's this guy who keeps sending us gift baskets? Yeah. 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 Maybe we should charge him a hundred thousand dollars for his own name as a, as a web domain. Like when the internet started, I probably had like three years to get my own name as a URL and I failed and I didn't even know it was a thing. So because of that, I am benrockonline.com, and you can find all my shit there. You can see my reel. You can see uh, pictures of plays I've directed, links to a bunch of stuff, uh, and all my socials. Could you do, like, official Benrock or Benrock official or one of those other sort well, of I just things. went with Benrock online because, yeah. you know, I don't know. Yeah, it works. I, I actually don't know if it super matters. But it, pr- it probably doesn't. Yeah. All, all just, those people who are like, I can't find Benrock anywhere. I know. It's really hard to find me. If you have Google, you can probably find me pretty easily. Anyway, uh, uh, end of that rant. Ilya, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com. Uh, funny story, Hot Rod Cameras, pretty easy to Google. But uh, I will tell you, now that we've started using some search engine optimization tools and things like that, we're able to see what our competitors' keywords are. And a lot of them are using hot rod cameras in their keywords to try to convince no people. No shit. Yes, absolutely. Including... The largest, you know, <gasps> electronics company out there uses hot rod cameras to try to convince people to go get into their, the higher search. Are you, are you turning turning around and just using all of their names as, as keywords? Not yet. No, we haven't done that. Oh. I don't. I don't know if that. I don't know how that helps us or not. So, but anyway, we're, we it was a it was a fun revelation recently to discover that like three four of our top competitors are like oh all these. Variations of hot rod camera, hot rod cameras, hot rod cameras, Hollywood, hot rod cameras, Burbank, all those things like, you know, showing up in competitors keywords. It was like, wow, look at that. That is some sneaky. That's some bullshit right there. Oh, uh, I wanted to tell you this, but Spencer Hutchins got back to me after we uh, talked about protecting the frame, his podcast about, you know, camera operation and cinema, like boots on the ground, working on the set, cinematography and camera department stuff. And uh, our mention gave his uh, podcast a little bit of a boost. So if you're still listening to the sound of my voice and you want to hear some more talk about cinematography, maybe from a much more technical perspective, but a, but a very knowing perspective, check out the podcast Protecting the Frame. 
All right. So, Ben, let's thank some people. Who can who can we thank this week? Uh, absolutely. Well, first off, uh, Alana Cody and her random number generator earlier uh, tonight for uh, helping us find the uh, winner of the Judith Weston book, but also for lining up uh, a rogues gallery of some of the best cinematographers who have ever lived who we've had on this show. So thank you, Alana. Who else should we thank, Ilya? Let's thank Kay Zalatrachi. Kay's, you know, we, we keep saying how we're going to have Kay's on but I'm like this moment, I'm like vowing that this week will not end without me making that phone call to try to like set that up. So let's yeah, do it. Yeah, it's going to happen. I'm not I'm tired of like lip service like, oh, yeah, we'll do it someday or yet. Yeah. No, for years for we've years. been saying to Case. Be- and I actually feel I feel so guilty. I've been stringing the guy along before March 18th. That this Friday, I am going to I'm calling him and saying, let's set a date on the calendar right now. We're setting a day. We're going to do this. And then I, I don't know what will happen, but I'm 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 making I'm making the play. You're putting your flag in the sand. That's right. <laughs> drawing the drawing the line in the dirt. All right. All right. And and lastly, but certainly not leastly, let's thank our intrepid, amazing, brilliant, talented editor Ben Katz. You can call who, him by his full name, Benjamin Katz. Benjamin Katz, cutting us up here and making us not sound like rambling doofuses. And I'll be interested to uh, listen to this episode to see how much of my rant at the beginning of this got cut out. Because, indeed, we had a completely different topic that we were going to use as our close focus and abandoned it entirely just on the fly. Uh, For all you who were looking for some hard-hitting news story about how Time Warner and Discovery and AT&T were were, were changing the world, there's Variety. There's Hollywood Reporter. There's some other places you can go. Or there's us next week. Or there's us next week. That's right. We'll we'll get into it next week. All right, Ben, I think that's going to do it. All right. Yeah, well, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.